Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I am so excited to talk with you today and for all of our listeners to hear what you have to say. So can you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure thing. My name is Marcus Collins. I'm a Detroit native. I always start with that because I feel like I'm a product of the city. I'm a marketing professor here at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, but I'm also the head of strategy at an advertising agency called Widen and Kennedy. I feel like my job at its core is to bridge the academic practitioner gap, taking those things that we rigorously look at and interrogate as scholars and as, as academics, but think about how do we apply that to the real world, the, the so what of it all. Um, and I get to be a part of the research that uncovers new learnings about the world, new knowledge about the world, disseminate it through scholarship, but also apply it through things that we put in the world. And in what areas does your specific research focus? So I sit inside of a field called consumer culture theory, which is the convergence of anthropology, psychology, sociology, and the marketing literature. And consumer culture theory is focused on one specific question with tons of implications. That what are the governing mechanisms that move people to consume in a uh, in a collective fashion, but they're not bound just by what they buy, but they are bound by why they buy the affects, the cognitions, the beliefs, the ideologies, the cultural conventions and expectations that govern their behavior. Right? People who don't just buy a motorcycle, they buy a hog, their Harley Davidson owner group, right? People who don't just watch uh, uh, sci fi, they're part of Game of Thrones. They don't just listen to K-pop. They are BTS fans. They don't just listen to, to, uh, to, to pop music. They're Swifties, right? They're, they are bound more than just their consumption, but they're bound by communal connections that are facilitated through the cultural characteristics that govern what people like them do. And there was an article that you were quoted in for Ad Age where you were explaining how brand purpose gives meaning to an item or to service. So can you talk a little bit about how brand purpose or this brand ideology allows companies to then connect with their consumers and how, how that influences their buying? Absolutely. Well, brands at their core are identifiable signifiers that conjure up thoughts and feelings in the hearts and minds of people relative to products companies, institutions, organizations, and people, right? They're signifiers. They're, they're vessels of meaning that evokes emotions and cognitions. And because of those emotions and cognitions, we're more inclined to buy. Why is that? Because emotions, uh, uh, these feelings that we have are associated in the part of the brain that's also associated with behavioral adoption. Right, So we leverage the meaning that brands hold in an effort to get people to adopt behavior. But here's where things get really interesting. Well, what determines meaning? Our culture. The beliefs that we hold, the ideologies that translate the world for us, the conventions and expectations of people like us. So much so that I would say that consumption is a cultural act. 
what we buy, what we drive, what we wear, how we adorn our hair, if you have it, uh, where you go to school, if you go to school, who you marry, if you marry, uh, where you vacation, what you eat, where you bury the dead, if you bury the dead. All of these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription. Daily living is governed by our cultural subscription. And the more conspicuous our behaviors and consumptions are, the more inclined they are to be influenced by our culture. There is no external force more influential in human behavior than culture, full stop. And the better we understand that, the more likely we are to leverage its sway. Can you expand on that, leveraging it a little bit? How do marketers use this in their strategy, knowing that customers do build this, this re relationship with brands or they create their own identity with a product or with a service, like you were saying, with like Swifties? And how is that used then strategically? Absolutely. Well, the job of marketing is to get people to adopt behavior. That is the core functioning of our job. Don't drink this, drink that. Don't go here, go there. Don't buy his shoes, buy my shoes. Don't vote for him, vote for her. Uh, wear a mask, get a shot, recycle. Everything we do as marketers is to get people to adopt behavior. And since culture is so influential to behavior, that becomes the biggest cheat code for marketers. In fact, I would say anyone with a vested interest in getting people to move, whether you're a marketer, a leader, an entrepreneur, uh, a manager, an activist, a politician, clergy, or just Jane, you know, plain old Jane Joe, if you are if you have a vested interest in getting people to move, culture is the most powerful way to do that. Well, how is that done? Well, we benefit from culture by contributing to it, by contributing to the the social facts that govern the cultural characteristics of a group of people, whether it's language, like just do it, whether it's uh, artifacts, like Beats by Dre headphones that we wear around our neck, even if we're not listening to music, it's, it's an accessory, it's like jewelry, if, if, if you will, to signal our identity. And this is really what we're after. Like we are social animals by nature. Humans are social animals by nature. We do everything we can to crash into each other. Evolutionary anthropologists would argue that the reason why we were able to evolve was our, our ability to cooperate, to socialize. And our consumption behaviors become ways by which we signal to the world, like a peacock, who we are, and to find people who are just like us. I mean, that's why I wear Michigan gear anytime I travel. Because the coolest thing happens, even if I'm going to another country, I wear a Michigan hat and someone sees my hat and goes, go blue. And I go, go blue. And in that moment, in that instance, I feel like I'm connected. I feel like I'm not on this continent by myself. Professor John Branch and I, another professor in the, the school, of, uh, the, the business school, and Ross, uh, who's a marketing professor as well, we were in Dubai, of all places, in Dubai sitting in the Delta lounge and someone walks by us and go, go blue. We go, go blue. And he's like, yeah, you know, I was in the executive MBA years ago. Like, and in that moment, John and I felt like we were connected and this is all we want as humans is to feel connected, to belong to something. And in this way, co uh, consumption becomes a way by which we make our cultural subscription material to make it tangible. So for marketers, for leaders, for entrepreneurs, the idea is we can harness that power by contributing to the cultural characteristics of that community that helps them connect with other people. That is, we facilitate the connections within communities. And we've known this for over a century now. 
the idea is that we have technologies today that help us do that better than we ever had before. It is such an incredible feeling anytime that you you feel like even briefly that you're a part of one of those communities. And so that was really wonderful to hear you explain it with so much of your expertise behind it. So thank you. And you have also, you know, turned all of this knowledge into a newly published book for the culture. And instead of me going through and reading, you know, reading off what the book is about, could you go ahead and tell us um, all about For the Culture? Absolutely. So For the Culture is my first book. Um, and it raises a question that probably doesn't feel provocative on the surface. It says that there's, it argues that there's no force more influential human behavior than culture. And when you hear that, most people nod their heads, go, yeah, totally, great. And then I say, cool, define culture. And you get a bunch of blank stares, right? If you ask five people to define culture, you get 25 different answers. And that's a problem, especially if we have a vested interest in getting people to move. We can't leverage the power of culture without actually having a Rosetta Stone to describe it, to understand the mechanisms that make it go. So the book provides some language that allows us to collectively describe culture by identifying the underlying physics, the system that is culture. And then it unpacks the ways by which we can leverage, harness its power to get people to adopt behavior. So I leverage the theory, uh, the, the research, uh, the empirical data that we have about humanity and then I leverage my years, decades of, of practice so we can look at how do we apply them to get people to move. So I, I leverage uh, my time running digital strategy for Beyonce, working with State Farm, uh, working with, uh, uh, with, with Google, with Apple, um, and working with Nike, like all these different brands that we herald as these brands are the pinnacle of branding. Well, how do they get there? They contribute to culture. They thrive in contemporary culture. And people consume these brands, not because of what they are, but because who they are. And was it, was your inspiration to do this, that question and, and that you know, seeking that definition, or can you tell us about that process and how, how you got to creating this wonderful product? Yeah, it was twofold. On one end, I just found uh, this anemia in our industry as marketers in advertising um, that we, we talk about getting our ideas out in the culture. We need to be informed by culture, what's happening in culture, 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 right? Just a part of our normal vernacular, but we didn't have good language for it. So for from a, a practical perspective, the idea was like, well, let's define it so we can operationalize it. We have a Rosetta Stone that we can actually operationalize. But then going through that process, that was kind of the driving impetus for the book. But once I started writing, I realized that there is a personal, uh, uh, a, a, a personal driver here too. I grew up born and raised in Detroit um, and I graduated from high school in the 90s. And in those days, if you uh, did well in math and science and you were black, you're going to be an engineer. So that's what I did. I, I had a pension for math and science. I'm black and I was from Detroit. So I went into engineering. And after my first year, we're here in Michigan, go blue. But my first year, I said, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be an engineer anymore. And my mom and dad, my mom's an academic. She says, you know, just wait to get into your major. You'll love it. My dad's like, yeah, your mom's right. Said, okay. So I go back my second year um, in my major, and I really don't love it. It's fascinating. It's interesting. But I shouldn't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. 
So I started taking some music theory courses to offset my shameful GPA. And while doing this, I fell in love with major sevenths. And I go, this is what I want to do. I want to be a songwriter. So I go home the summer after my sophomore year, said, mom and dad, I know what I want to do. I want to be a songwriter. They said, oh, no, you don't. That is not true. You do not want to be a songwriter and you ain't going to be a songwriter. You're going to go back up to Ann Arbor and you're going to finish that engineering degree, which is what I did. And when I left undergrad, I went into the music industry. But what I realized is that I was being interpolated by the cultural characteristics of what it means to be me. My earliest decisions as an adult, if you want to call it 18-year-old an adult, my earliest decisions were being informed by these social forces that were pushed on me, the conventions and expectations of what people like me ought to do. And when I realized that since I didn't have the language, it took me 20 plus years to get that language, since, since I didn't have the language to describe what was happening, I didn't have very much agency to navigate it. All I could say was that, oh, my parents are tripping. Oh, my parents are coming down on me. But truthfully, my parents were also being interpolated by what was expected of being a good parent to push your children towards a, a, a career that they thought was going to be uh, uh, beneficial for them. That we all, both my parents and myself, were being pushed by these forces that we know as culture. And because we didn't have good language to describe it, at least I didn't, I couldn't do very much about it. I, you know, I had some, you know, slight eyes from my friends when I was going to music, like, why would you do that? That's so hard. Why would you do that? Doesn't make any sense. And that sense, quote unquote, is it didn't feel normal. And that's what culture does. It is a measurement of normality. And what I realized while writing the book from a practical level, I figured that, you know, I can help people at a personal level too. If they have a better way of describing what's happening to them, then they'll be able to navigate it better. They'll have agency to subvert it. Um, and that, for me, just felt really rewarding. So I guess I'm writing this for 18-year-old Marcus as well. That was a really you know, wonderful personal narrative to help convey that the book is not intended just for marketers or not intended for a particular audience, but really for anyone, because we're all going on this individual journey of our own to identify where we are and where we fit in and, um, you know, what, what cultures we identify with. And so that I, that was, you know, really enlightening to hear you describe it that way and that you use that as part of your, your process. So what do you hope that readers in general, and I know it's a very vague question, but what, what do you kind of hope that readers take away after they finish the book? I hope the book itself serves as cultural product, that it becomes uh, text, it becomes literature that people refer to, to describe the world around them, that they use this as a way to express who they are. If you're a practitioner, you go, oh, I learned about culture, how to navigate culture through this guy at this school called University of Michigan, named Marcus, right? Um, and that the language that we use in our industry there's the language that is impregnated into this book. And I suppose at a higher level, um, I, I hope that people walk out of this, out of their time reading the book with more, uh, uh, with more agency to navigate culture, whether they are uh, on the receiving end of marketing communications that they can make better decisions, or they're designing marketing communications on behalf of brands to find congruence. Because ultimately, I would argue that the best marketers, they find congruence because they understand people. 
not consumers, not you know machines that eat messages and crap cash, but real life human beings. And because they look at people as humans, they don't think about how do I shove messages and product down their throat? They think, how do I help them? How do I serve them? And when we get to that place as marketers, I think that the discipline of marketing writ large becomes a lot more valuable. And I think that as humans, when we get to a place of understanding that people live and, 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 uh, and navigate the world through different meaning frames, culture, then we probably become a little bit more civil. Then we go, okay, Erica, I don't believe what you believe, but I see how you got there because of your belief system. And therefore, I get it. Such long as so long as your your ideologies, your cultural characteristics don't infringe or or oppress me, all all good. And I think that like ultimately, if the book can help people be a little bit more civil in their practice, in their day to day lives, then I think that uh, I would have probably done something meaningful here. Absolutely, the that you know impact will be immense, without a doubt. Um, what has the the process been like? You know, you're a very you know profound speaker. You have this you know really accomplished career so far. What has the process been like for you know writing a book and now marketing a book compared to some of the other work and the research that you've done throughout your career to this point? It's been a lonely process. <laughs> I mean, I thought that the academic research is lonely. Um, and it, it can be, but typically you're bouncing ideas off of your peers or, you know, in my doctoral program, my, my advisor, but I feel like there's, there are much more stimuli, um, that I get in doing the research part because it's so iterative along the way, but a book just felt like so isolating. I had my editor, which was great, but even she was like, no, just go write a bunch of chapters. And then, you know, let me look at some stuff. So I just feel like kind of alone in, in, in the process. So then when it comes to promoting the book, you want the book in people's hands. So I'm trying to, you know, uh, uh, get people excited about the book to get it. Um, but now I'm feeling a little insecure. Like, I'm like, so what do you think? And the book just came out, you know, May 2nd. Uh, so people haven't had that much time to, to dig into it. So I'm like, you know, people are like, got the book. I'm like, what do you think? I'm like, can I read it first, Marcus? Can you give me a chance to read it? So it went from being a lonely place to a bit of an insecure place. But I will say, though, all that said, I'm really, really proud of this work. Um, and I feel like it, it is a, a great distillation of uh, the work that I've done as an academic, as a scholar, um, and the work that I've done as a practitioner. But even more so, it's framed by my lived experiences as a human, as a, as a Collins, as a Christian, as a Wolverine, as a, a Black man navigating this world. And I feel like the it's a, it's a special piece of text because it's seen through all those different lenses. And hopefully it creates uh, um, uh, a frame that people haven't seen before and they can see the world a little bit differently. Thank you for giving us that perspective. And I know we are at our time. So is there anything else that you want to share about For the Culture or just about this process or your research and expertise in general? Yes. I want people to know that this is not a marketing book. It's a people book. I happen to be a marketer, so I put a marketing lens on it. But this book is all about people. And I would argue that marketing is all about people. So it's kind of one and the same. But at the core, this isn't about teaching you to be a better marketer. 
is teaching you to be a better student of humanity. And I would argue that the best marketers are students of humanity and the best people are students of humanity as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Marcus. We greatly appreciate the time that you have given Michigan Minds today. And uh, I'm really excited to finish reading the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.